wish that Christmas lasts forever Wrap the world in snowy white Everyone could be together Staying warm around the fire It's a picture-perfect moment Every ornament in place Sweet as cinnamon and sugar Knowing Santa's on his way in that Good morning, everyone. Uh, as Tony said, welcome to Madani East Grace Church. If we've never met before, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors on staff. Thanks again for coming out. We're glad you're here with us. And also, again, want to welcome those of you who are watching online. Now, before we get started uh, this morning, I have a disclaimer that I need to give to those of you who are parents in the room, specifically to those of you who have younger children who are physically in the room right now. So if you have uh, younger kids who are physically in the room right now, if you are in the cafe and you're watching and your younger kids are right there, if you are at home, and you're watching, and those younger kids in the background, the story that I am about to tell you has some Christmas spoilers in it. You guys tracking with me? There are Christmas spoilers in the story. So if you have a kid who is watching or listening or somehow in the room, this would be a good time to maybe take them back to Power Kids or to get up and go to the bathroom for about five minutes or so. And then when we dive into like the passage, you'll be good for the rest of the service, but just... As clear as I can, because I don't want to get emails. There are Christmas spoilers that are coming. If you don't want me to ruin Christmas for the rest of your childhood, now is your chance to get up. I think we're tracking. Okay. I don't see any movement, so uh, this is your decision now. All right. So back when our first uh, daughter, Riley, was about three or four years old, uh, my wife and I were driving home, and we were in the car one day, and uh, from the back seat, all of a sudden, kind of out of nowhere, we hear her little voice say, Daddy, is Santa real? Now, again, this is our first daughter, so we are pretty uh, new to the whole parenting thing. We had never had to deal with this question yet. And uh, to the best of my knowledge, me and my wife had never had a conversation about this yet either. So we had not discussed, hey, here is how we're going to handle this moment when we are forced to deal with it. And so, but on that particular day, right, with no time to prepare, Riley puts me on the spot. And so I'm driving, and after hesitating for about two seconds, I decide to say, nope, which was then followed by a really long, awkward moment of silence in her car. And so my wife is sitting next to me, and I say no, and uh, all of a sudden she kind of looks over at me and her eyes get real big, and I am reading the body language that communicates, what did you just do? And then uh, after a moment, she breaks the silence and she says, well, I guess that's over with. Right? And so, uh, obviously, the moment, my, my answer was not planned, but for better or worse, here's what was going through my mind in like the two seconds between when Riley asked me the question and when I crushed the hopes and dreams of my firstborn child. And so, in that moment, the first thing that I thought to myself was this it was, I don't want to lie to my daughter. Right? As a new parent, uh, I'm just thinking through what's, gonna go, what's going through my mind, what she's going to find out eventually. I don't want to break trust with my daughter. This is an important thing, right? I'm setting the stage for years to come. Again, I probably overplayed this moment in my mind as a new dad, but it was just one of the things that was going through my mind was, well, I just, I don't want to lie to her. Here's the second thing that was going through my mind at that moment. Well, what happens when she finds out that he's not real? 
Because right? here's what I didn't want her to do. I didn't want her to associate Jesus with Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, and the Tooth Fairy. Right? I did not want her to like mentally put all of these in the same category and then eventually one day say, well, well these were cute for me as a kid, Dad, but now that I'm older, well, well now I, I know better. I don't believe in fairy tales anymore. Now, the point of this story is not meant to be parenting advice. I think there are actually a lot of different ways to handle the whole Santa thing. And to be honest, the way I handled it, it was not planned. It's just kind of what happened in the moment. Uh, But what I think this story does do is it introduces an interesting question as we enter the Christmas season. And so for those of us who grew up in church and who grew up believing in all of this, why as grown adults, why do we only still believe in Jesus? Right? So as kids, we like to live in a world of make-believe and fantasy and fairy tales. And so some of you guys as small children, like we, let to, we like to let our imaginations run wild. And so some of you guys, some of you had imaginary friends as children. Some of you probably had tea parties with your stuffed animals growing up. Some of you would, would put a cape on and you probably ran around your house pretending that you could fly or that you had superhero powers in some form or another. But as we grow older, and in most cases, perhaps a little bit wiser... Many of those things that we believed in as children, well, those are not the same things that we come to believe in as adults, right? We grow out of those things because many of those things, those are childish beliefs that inevitably we leave behind. So the question that we're going to ask today is this, is how do we know that Jesus is more than a fairy tale, right? How do we know that he's more than a fairy tale? Why in the world as grown adults do we not believe in those other characters I had on the screen but yet we still put our faith in and even pray to a God who, like those other characters, we cannot see or touch. So if you have a Bible with you, I want you guys to open with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. If you don't have one, there should be one in the seat back in front of you. We're going to be on page 783. And we say this all the time, but if you need a Bible, if you would like a Bible and you don't have one, you can actually take that Bible home with you. You can consider that a gift from us. But while you guys are are turning there, before we get uh, to Matthew chapter one, the obvious answer to this question of how do we know Jesus is more than a fairy tale is this. One of the answers is the resurrection. So if you have been following along with us, we've been working our way through the book of Acts for a while now. And in the book of Acts, the apostles continually point back to the resurrection as the hinge point to everything that we believe, right? Paul literally says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, and if Christ has not been raised Our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. He says, without the resurrection, your faith and your belief, it's meaningless. And so one of the number one reasons we believe Jesus is for real is the resurrection. But long before the cross, there was actually another form of evidence that the writers of the gospel and the early church and believers throughout the centuries have leaned on, and that evidence is actually the fulfillment of prophecy. The fulfillment of prophecy. Now, my guess is, if I were to do a word association of what comes into your mind when you think about Christmas, I'm guessing this is not on your list, or this is not one of the first things, right? It would take you a while before you would land there. But if you pay attention, as you read through the Christmas narrative, you actually find that Matthew gives the fulfillment of prophecy. He gives it a ton of real estate in the first two chapters of his gospel as we read the Christmas story, which means on some level he thinks it is both important 
Andy thinks it's something that we should pay attention to. So that's where we're headed today. So what we're going to do next is we're going to read through not all of, but most of the Christmas narrative. And as we do, I want you to pay attention and I want you to notice just how many times Matthew draws our attention towards this reality. So let's check it out. Starting in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, we read this. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophets has written. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judea are by no means least among the rulers, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Skip down to verse 13. When they, referring to the Magi, had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. And so was fulfilled what, would, what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. And so at least five times in the story of the birth of Jesus, Matthew highlights and draws attention to the prophets. So if you put them all up there together, right, you can kind of, I know you guys probably can't read all of this, it's a little small, but I wanted to show it all of you to all of you at the same time. And so what you see, if, if you zoom out a little bit, is that over and over and over, Matthew points out a specific detail or fact about the birth of Jesus, and then he quotes a specific prophecy from the Old Testament that predicted that very fact or event. So Matthew starts by saying, well, let me tell you the story about a man named Jesus who, well, he was born of a virgin, 
And I know how crazy that might sound, but actually, 700 years ago, your own prophet, he actually predicted this. He said that this was going to happen. And did you know that this this same man named Jesus, that he was also born in the town of Bethlehem? He wasn't from Bethlehem, but the circumstances aligned that he was actually born in the town of Bethlehem. And again, 700 years, some before that, that was actually predicted. It was prophesied by one of your prophets, by the prophet Micah. Right, he goes on, he says, well, let me, let me tell you the story about this man named Jesus. And even though his parents were from Nazareth and he was born in Bethlehem, he actually spent the first few years of his life living in Egypt, which again, this too fulfilled a messianic prophecy from the book of Hosea. Right, and on down the line, Matthew continues to introduce his audience to this man named Jesus. And part of that introduction includes the fulfillment of numerous messianic prophecies. And there are actually more we did not look at. If, you were to, if we were to read through the genealogy of Jesus, there are more included in there that confirms that he came from the line of David and the tribe of Judah, which again were things that were predicted about the Messiah. Now I'm guessing that when you guys look at these individually, some of you might be thinking to yourself, some of these seem like pretty random and unimportant details. Like if you're honest, you're like, well, who, who really cares that he spent a little chunk of his childhood living in Egypt, right? Like does that, does that really matter at all? But I think, I think what happens is when you collectively, when you take these collectively, when you zoom out a little bit and you start to compile all of these various prophetic fulfillments together, what starts to create a pretty compelling case for Jesus actually being the Messiah, and these, these are just ones related to his birth, right? What we celebrate at Christmas is just the start of Jesus's prophetic fulfillment. Biblical scholars will estimate that over the course of his life and his death and his resurrection, that Jesus actually went on to fulfill hundreds of prophecies, many of which were well beyond his control, right? You don't have control over where you are born or who your parents are or what family lineage you are part of, right? You have no control over these things. And yet, all these things were true of Jesus. Now, for time's sake, we're obviously not gonna look at all of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, but I do wanna show you a handful more that scripture says Jesus went on to fulfill. And so long before Jesus was born, in some of these cases, it was maybe predicted 500 years before, and some of them upwards of 1,000 years before, Scripture would accurately predict the following things. It would predict that Jesus' ministry would begin in Galilee. It would predict that Jesus would teach in parables, that Jesus would perform many miracles, that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, which if you understand that one, it is about far more than just his like choice of transportation, right? It's actually declaring the type of king that he was gonna be. Scripture would predict that Jesus would be betrayed by a friend, that Jesus would be betrayed for exactly 30 pieces of silver, and that silver would be used to buy a potter's field. And predict they would cast lots for his clothing, that like the Passover lamb, he would be killed, but none of his bones would be broken. That one, I, when you look into that and kind of read the stories, there's just some really cool stuff in there. And that on the third day that he would rise again, right? And these are just some of them, right? You could continue to go on and on with this. Now, I do want to pause here for a moment. I want to give you the disclaimer that trying to understand and make sense of prophecy in the Bible, that it can be a rabbit hole that is uh, deep and it is easy to get lost in. 
Because while some of these prophecies are incredibly straightforward, like you read, you read the Old Testament verse and then you read the New Testament one and you're like, that's what it said and that's what he did and it's like super straightforward. While some of them are that way, many of them, quite frankly, they're not. Some of these prophecies get into things like typology and others require a working knowledge of the first century language or culture or understanding how a Hebraic mind thinks very different than, a, than maybe one of our more Western-shaped minds. And so I do want to caution you that if you are someone who gets super excited about this stuff, which is okay, I just want to caution you that it is a, it is a deep rabbit hole that you can easily get lost in. And so, so just be careful before you dive in too deep there. But here's where I think this has tremendous value. Again, I think the value in this really comes when you are able to step back and look at it like the collective total of this. Because I think what you find is you have, again, an incredible amount of evidence to make a case that Jesus really was the Messiah that he claimed to be. Now, as I was studying all of this this past week, I came across something that I thought was pretty cool. Now, I recognize that not everyone in the room is going to think this is as cool as I did, so, uh, but I, I feel like it was worth sharing anyways. And so one of the questions that I found myself asking, so as I'm kind of looking all of this stuff up and researching this, one of the f- questions I kept asking myself is simply, what are the odds, right? Like, what are the odds that one person could actually fulfill so many of these things? And one of the things that I came across was that apparently there was a guy named Peter Stoner who famously tried and decided to figure the odds out. And so, now what I like about this guy's process is there's actually a lot of debate about how many prophecies Jesus actually fulfilled. And that debate ranges from somewhere in like the mid-150 range all the way up to 400, right? And so, massive discrepancy there. So there's a lot of debate even within Christian circles about this. But what I like about what this guy said is he says, well, what if we just choose like eight of the most obvious ones? Like eight of the ones that everyone can agree on, what if we just figured out the odds of one person actually fulfilling eight of these? Now, if you want more details about his process, if you want to know which prophecies he chose and how they came to the conclusion of what the odds were, you can actually check all this out for yourself. In this book, it's called Evidence Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. If you go to this book and you look up chapter nine, you can read all about the process and the details and um, how this kind of came about. But And then what you'll find in this book is that in the late 1950s, there was a guy named Peter Stoner who was a Christian writer, and he was chairman of the departments of mathematics and astronomy at Pasadena City College. And then he went on to be chairman of the science division at Westmont College. And so while he was at Westmont College, he started this project with the help of all of his students. And so uh, he decided to take on this task of calculating these odds. And so after working with hundreds of his students and taking a conservative approach, remember they're only choosing eight of these, they're not choosing all of them, they actually submitted their results to the American Scientific Affiliation for review. Here's what they concluded. They concluded that the odds of one man fulfilling just eight of the major prophecies was this. It was one in 10 to the 17th power or one in in that number, that thing which I actually looked up this week because I was curious. Uh, and if you're curious, it is a hundred quadrillion, which I didn't even know was a word, but that's a thing. So this is a hundred quadrillion. Uh, so if you were to be part of a raffle and let's say there were 10 people in this raffle and they were going to draw just one ticket, then you would have a one in 10 chance of winning the raffle. And according to Stoner, the odds of one man fulfilling just 
eight of these major prophecies is one in a hundred quadrillion. Now, if you're like me, that number is far too large to even wrap my brain around, right? Like I start to check out when I, there's so many zeros, I just start like, I don't even know what to do with that. And so uh, the good news is that there are several men who spent probably more time than they should have coming up with some illustrations and like did the math to visually illustrate this so that we could try and wrap our brain around this. So one of the ones that I came across uh, that I thought was helpful came from a guy named Lee Strobel. Some of you guys might recognize that name. He famously has written some books called The Case for Faith and The Case for Christ are probably the more famous ones. And so he spent a lot of time uh, doing the math and helping us come up with a visual to help us wrap our brain around this. Here's what he said. He said, I imagined the entire world being covered with white tile that was one and a half inches square. Every bit of dry land on the planet with the bottom of just one tile painted red. Then I pictured a person being allowed to wander for a lifetime around all seven continents. He would be permitted to bend down only one time and pick up a single piece of tile. What are the odds it would be the one tile whose reverse side was painted red? The odds would be the same as just eight of the Old Testament prophecies coming true in any one person throughout history. Now, I know that numbers are not something that all of you guys get excited about, but I have kind of an engineering mathematical background, and so when I saw that, man, that's just something that was really cool to me. That was something that kind of blew my mind a little bit. But the point that guys like Stoner and McDowell and Strobel are trying to make, it's all really the same. And that's that if you step back and you look at the whole of the prophetic evidence that what Jesus did, that it is statistically impossible. And the only way in their mind that this makes sense is that if Jesus really is the Messiah that we celebrate and we sing about at Christmas. Now, one of the other things that you have to remember is that at the time of Jesus' birth, that the Jews, they had been longing for and waiting for the Messiah to come for literally hundreds of years. And so if you were someone living in the first century and you were reading Matthew's gospel for the very first time, and that gospel started with Matthew saying, let me tell you the story about a man who fulfilled this prophecy and this prophecy and this prophecy, and this prophecy, right? If you were someone living in the first century, this would have caused you to immediately sit up in your chair and to lean in. Because there were other men who had come and gone who had also claimed to be the Messiah. But none of them had this kind of resume. Right? None of them had the ability to back up their claims with the proof and the evidence that Jesus did. And so again, I think one of the reasons that Matthew includes this at the start of his gospel is because it gives significant credibility to the outlandish claims he is about to make about Jesus. And as you continue to read the New Testament, what you find is that Matthew is not the only one who leans in on prophetic fulfillment. In Matthew chapter five, Jesus himself said this, He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
Later in Luke 24, this is post the resurrection. Jesus is walking along the road with his disciples, trying to help them like process and make sense of things. Here's what he says. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. If you move on to the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 26, Paul is uh, on trial and he's speaking with someone named King Agrippa. Here's what he says. Paul replied, what I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then King Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. And so over and over, we find the early church relying on prophecy to give credibility to the claims that they were making about Jesus. And they did so not to win an argument or to be right, but they did so with the goal of pointing people to the person of Jesus and to his gospel and to the life that he has called them to. And so as we kick off the Christmas season, I have three ways that I think that this should challenge us and three ways that I think this should inform how we actually live our lives today. So I got three things for you guys. So here's the first one. I think as believers, I think this should give you confidence. I think all of this should give you confidence. I think for those of us in the room who have already decided to follow Jesus, that this should give us an increased sense of confidence in the God that we've decided to follow. I think this should reassure us that Jesus is not just a fairy tale, but that he is actually the real deal. Because I think sometimes as believers, I think often we are told in our moments of doubt, what people tell us is you need to have faith, right? The problem is you just need to have more faith. And while faith will always be critical, a critical part of following Jesus, what I don't think that means is I don't think that means we need to take our brain and put it on a shelf, shut off all reason, and simply just like close our eyes and believe, like to wish it into existence, I think just like the apostles in the early church, we should have tangible evidence that reinforces what we already believe to be true and, and that we can point others to if they want to investi investigate the ridiculous claims that we make about Jesus. If you guys know my story at all, you know that I grew up in a strong Christian family. I had great parents, and so when I headed off to college, I had a very solid foundation of faith. But probably like any other Christian on a secular campus, I found opposition to that. Right? I was a, as I mentioned earlier, I was an engineering major, and so I lived in a world of math and science and facts, and that was an environment that was not always the most accepting of my faith. And some of my classes, they were, even, they were even hostile towards my faith. And even though I believed in God, if I'm being honest, there were moments in my college years where I'd find myself alone in my dorm room and I would be doubting all of this, right? Because I was hearing things for the first time that were like strongly opposing what I believed in, and they seemed like there was some things that made sense to them. And so I found myself asking, man, God, am I, am I crazy to believe all of this? Like, is all of this stuff, is it 
actually true? And I remember in those moments of doubt, having friends who pointed me to books and resources like the ones I referenced earlier, who did a phenomenal job of helping me see the mountain of tangible evidence that backed up my beliefs. They helped me see that smart and logical people can also believe in God. And if I'm being honest, that came for me during a season of my life when my faith needed some reassurance. And I think that if we're honest, my guess is every one of us is in the room who is a believer. All of us either have had or currently have moments or seasons of doubt. Right? We have moments where we question the things that we're basing our life on. There will be times for all of us when we go through a difficult trial or maybe seasons where it feels like our prayers are just bouncing off the wall. Some of you guys will find yourself in environments at school or at work or maybe even at home where you are made to feel like your faith is silly or you are simple-minded for believing the things that you believe. And I think in those moments, it is important to have more than just hopeful thinking to rely on. I think it is important to have some actual evidence that we can look to and point to in our moments of doubt. And I think, and like Matthew, I think that the prophecies that Jesus began to fulfill at Christmas, I think that gives us that. Now, the other thing that I think this should do is I think this should also give us confidence for things in the future, right? Because there are, while there are a lot of prophecies that have already been fulfilled, there are other things in Scripture that are ongoing or have yet to be fulfilled. And so we're also told that Jesus will always be with us, that he will return one day, that he has gone to prepare a place for us, that one day there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, and, right? and so it's a valid question to say, well, what in the world should give us any confidence that those things are going to be true? We're like, how do we know God's going to follow through on these things? Well, I think one of the reasons is because he has already fulfilled so many prophecies in the past that when we look back at what he has already done, that can give us a level of confidence that he is going to continue to do that and that he is trustworthy to follow through on things in the future. So the first thing that I think all of this should do is I think that for those of us who believe, I think this should give you an increased sense of confidence in your belief. That leads me to the second thing I think this should do. I think this should cause everyone, everyone to take his teachings seriously. I think this should cause everyone to take his teachings seriously. I'm not going to spend a ton of time here because we have said this multiple times here at Medina East, but if Jesus really is who he claimed to be, then that should cause us to take every single word that he said and every single thing that he taught very, very seriously. We will address this more throughout the series, but if Jesus really is the Messiah, if he really is the King of Kings, then that does not allow for a casual following, but it demands our full obedience. That is not something you do for a season of your life. That is something that you do with all of your life, which leads to the final thing I think it should do. And with that, I'm going to invite the band to come back up. I think for those that are investigating Jesus, I think this should give you pause. I think this should give you pause. Now, there are some people out there who simply don't want Jesus to be true, I think there are some people who have already decided and fixed in their minds that Jesus is not an option 
and there is no amount of evidence that you can give them that will convince them out of that, right? They've just positioned themselves kind of closed off. But I think that for anyone who is genuinely investigating the man we call Jesus, I think the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, I think they create a mountain of evidence that any honest seeking person simply cannot ignore. And so if that's you, if you are investigating Jesus, then I think this mountain of evidence should give you pause. But I also want you to know that all of this evidence, it still has its limitations. Because the point of this evidence is not to try and answer every single question you can have because we can't do that and there will always be another question. But I think that the point of this evidence is to direct you to a person. And not just any person, but a man named Jesus who if you continue to read the rest of Matthew's gospel, you will go on to read that he loved you enough to die on a cross that you could be forgiven of your sin. And so I think evidence like this is good and I think evidence like this is helpful. It can only take you so far and there comes a point in every person's life where they still need to take a step of faith and you need to encounter the living God for yourself. And my hope is that the evidence that we have considered today would be enough to cause you to slow down, to pause, and to take a deeper look at the man we both celebrate and we sing about at Christmas. Let me pray for us. Father, you are good. And I am, uh, I am one who is incredibly grateful that you did not uh, just leave us with wishful thinking and hope, but that you gave us actual, tangible evidence that we can look to and that we could rely on and that we could get confidence from. So God, I pray for anyone in the room who is currently in a season of doubt that you would use your evidence that you've given us, that you would give them reassurance and that you would give them confidence that you really are the Messiah who was to come. That you would give them confidence in their life and their decision to follow you in every aspect that you call us to. And God, for those in the room who are still investigating you, who have doubts, who have questions, who have all sorts of things they want to figure out. God, I pray that this would give them pause, that you would take the weight of this evidence and that you would press that into them to the point, not where they feel like they've lost an argument, God, but where they are directed to you, where they would seriously investigate you and they would read the rest of the gospel and see what you claimed and what you call us to. God, would you direct people investigating to you? And in those moments, God, would you show up in ways that no rational evidence can explain, but in ways that only you could do? Would you reveal yourself to them as the king we celebrate at Christmas? Father, we love you. We thank you. We worship you now. It's in your son's name. Amen.